Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa buddhang damang sankang namasami So hopefully that many of you are beginning to get into your meditation and some of you will be getting frustrated with your meditation already, and you've got another two and three-quarter months to go. <laughs> so, uh, chanting the Dhamma Chakra Pawatana Sutta just now, is from that sutta you get some very profound teachings of meditation. And the first of those profound teachings is one which is very simple, but incredibly effective. From that sutta, I got the two types of meditation. You've heard these before, but I'm going to expand on them. The second noble truth meditation and the third noble truth meditation. The third noble truth is letting go leads to the end of suffering, leads to peace, nibbana. And so if ever you're getting peaceful in the meditation, I call that third noble truth meditation. But maybe you won't experience third noble truth meditation until a bit later. Now you're experiencing second noble truth meditation. Suffering, frustration, it's not working. Why is it not working? And instead of just putting effort in, you always have to remember to use wisdom power. If you're not getting peaceful and joy coming up in the meditation, it's because you have been practicing second noble truth meditation. You're craving, you're wanting somewhere. Remember those three types of craving. Craving for sensory enjoyment, interest. Messing around in the world of the five senses. Either fantasizing, dreaming, remembering, planning. Anything to do with the world in which you mostly live, in which this body lives. But as well as that is the craving to be. Which is also includes the craving to do. You've heard me say before, just quoting Western philosophers Descartes and Sartre, who both identified being and doing. When you're being, you have to do something. When you do something, you get the sense of being. So that craving to be and craving to do, or that is actually part of the second noble truth meditation. And even the craving to try and get rid of things, the vibhavadana, to exterminate stuff, that too is craving. And when you look at those three, you can understand why there is suffering in the meditation. So whenever there's a problem there, that's where you have to look at. But the point with this craving or this doing is such a very subtle thing, which is a lot of times we can't see it because we're looking in the wrong place. And if you can only see that part inside of you which is doing the craving, which is messing up the meditation, which is not letting go, you know, the, the place where attachment begins, you know, the origin spot of craving inside your mental world, if you can only notice that, it's quite simple actually to stop the craving, to stop the attaching, to stop the doing. And the problem is that it's very hard to find that little spot and see it. The reason is because we're always looking outside rather than inside. This, many years ago, I came up with my famous simile of the hand. And you also know that that was part of the Buddha's teachings. 
I just thought I invented it. But that simile of the hand is very helpful to me anyway. That was when that I noticed that <coughs> this idea of upadana as attachment or grasping, which is so close to craving. Why do I keep picking up things? I notice sometimes when you give a talk, you pick this up, you pick that up, you scratch, you move your robe. Why can't the hand stay still? It's got nothing to do, but still it keeps on moving. And why does it keep picking up things and putting down things? And you know, to me, that was a very great simile of my mind in meditation. The mind was always picking up things which had no business picking up. Grasping things, scratching things, holding things, putting things down, moving things. The mind was acting in just the same way that my hand acts. You know, when you're not mindful of it, it starts to move all over the place. You know, now that I've pointed it out, your hands are probably very still. But, you know, if I wasn't pointing that out during the talk, your hand will scratch this, will move that, move the robe. And it's amazing just how many times that hand moves. Why does it do that? And if you could only see just with the origin of your hand movement, where does that actually come from? Then you could actually stop the hand moving. You could keep it still. And when it gets still, as you know, it disappears. A lot of times, you know, it starts moving, it's fidgeting because it's not comfortable. It's one of the reasons why I've taught for a long time now and I practice what I teach when I first sit down to meditate. I spend a long time with my body, first of all, making sure it's really comfortable. Because if my body's discontent, if it's not happy, if it's not relaxed in that position, it will always move, fidget to try and find a more comfortable position. It moves because of discontent. But that discontent is as if my hand, I shall trace it back to my arm, and my arm trace it up through my shoulder, almost to my brain, and find that point you know, in this so-called location of the mind, in the brain, where it starts to move. And that's the place I put my focus on, in order to keep the, the hand still. And if I can actually do that, why does the hand move? And that's its, it's nature to do that, if you're not mindful of the place where it, where it originates from. But when I can actually leave it alone, the hand becomes very still. And of course, the next thing which happens it vanishes, it disappears. You can't feel the hand anymore. And that's when you get this beautiful sense of freedom. It's part of <coughs> the kaya pasadi, the tranquility of the body, which doesn't mean the body's just not moving. It means it mo doesn't move and it disappears as well. That's a pasadi. That's the tranquilizing, calming it down to the point of disappearance and vanishing. So how can you actually do that with your mind? Remember a lot of times that in that simile of the hand, you know, I imagine that you know, when I was picking things up, I'd say, remember to put them down, but then it will pick something up again, and then it will put it down again, and I'll pick something else up again. Because I was focusing on the hand, and not really focusing on the place where the movement starts, where the picking up starts, which is not actually in the hand. It's not out there, it's in here. It's looking in the opposite direction. So instead of looking at the objects of attachment, you know, the thoughts, the emotions, you know, the happiness and suffering, which are the objects which you're attaching to. If you look at that place, it's endless. If I keep looking at my hand, I just can't stop it moving. It's its nature to do that. 
However, if I look at the place where the origin of my hand movement begins, then I can actually calm that down and the hand doesn't move. If I can find out the origin, why my mind goes grasping onto things and thinking things, and look at that place, then that's the place once you can notice where that is and be mindful of that place and remember that place, that's where it becomes very easy to calm the mind down. So it doesn't go picking up thoughts and emotions and pleasures and pains and dreams and plans and all this other stuff. Don't look at the object, look at the place, the other end of the hand, my side of the arm, not the outside side of the arm. And just that little perception helped me a lot to be able to let go and allow things to become still. Otherwise, it really does become frustrating when you're meditating. Just things keep thinking and worrying and you can't stop it and you try and use force and it doesn't work because basically you're looking in the wrong place. So somehow or other we've got to sort of go inside. Inside the mind and find why does the mind move? Where does it come from? So you really understand what craving actually is. You know, a lot of these concepts we call craving, we call suffering, being, existence, whatever, a lot of times it's an assumption we know what these things actually mean. And I used that in a, <coughs> a talk some time ago to the lay people about you know, people don't understand even what compassion is. Simple word like that. We think, yeah, we know what compassion is, being kind to people and being kind. You know, that's not really it. How I know what compassion is, is by its results. It's actually what it does, its function. Not what it feels like or what I think it is, but what it actually achieves. Because I notice whenever I'm compassionate to any part of my body, it relaxes. It gets this beautiful sense of ease. The tightness and tension vanishes. If I'm compassionate to a person sitting in front of me after the meal, then they relax. I know what compassion is from its results. So if I look at any part of my body and it's hurting and it's tense, and I say I'm going to be compassionate to you and nothing happens, it's not compassion, that was the wrong thing. Because I know what real compassion is by its effect, what it, ha what it does. It's the same as letting go, I know what letting go is because what it achieves. It's sort of things vanish, everything relaxes, the hand doesn't move, the mind doesn't move anymore. So this is actually where we're also finding what craving is. We found out what craving is by its result. Craving makes the mind pick up things. Craving causes attachment, grasping. So that's what actually craving is. So a lot of times when we're meditating, we haven't really understood what craving is yet. Until we can actually meditate, watch the mind, and allow things to become very still and peaceful. Great, you've seen craving, you've stopped it, now the mind is peaceful, you can do Third Noble Truth meditation. So in all of this meditation which we're doing, yes we're aiming for stillness, yes we're allowing things to become very calm and very peaceful and things disappearing and vanishing and getting the happiness born of stillness, yes. At the same time we get incredible insights now, real experiential insights into assumptions which we thought we knew, but we found actually we didn't really understand these things at all. Simple things like compassion, simple things like craving, 
which we thought we knew. But this is powerful stuff. Craving is the cause of suffering. If you really knew what craving was, if you really knew what it was, you'd be able to let it go. It's not knowing what it is. If you really knew what compassion was, you could turn it on whenever you needed to. But you don't know what it is. That's the problem. We have all these assumptions. But when we actually practice, when we meditate, that's when we find out if we really know or we don't know. If we can relax our body, relax the people around us, relax our own mind, then we know what compassion is. Yeah, that was it, compassion. It's worked. You know it by its results. Same as craving. You know it because it doesn't allow you to be still. It doesn't allow you to be peaceful. You get frustrated. You get tired. And what a lot of people do? More craving. It does not work. So, first of all, go into that point where all this movement comes from. Don't just worry about, as I said last week, the screen. The person sitting in the, in the theater seat. You go there. What's this person watching? What's this person doing things? Go right inside. Go in the opposite direction. If you can go into the opposite direction, that's, <coughs> that's where you can also see this great illusion of a me, a mind, who has to meditate, who has to make things work, who has to achieve, who has to get something on this range retreat. And you see there is the big problems. Where there's a sense of self, there's a me, there's always a mind, what you own. And when you own things, you'll be delight and there'll also be frustration. It's my meditation, it's my practice, it's my retreat. You get into huge amounts of trouble when that's there. Because the craving comes from this delusion that there's somebody in here to do the craving. When you go deep inside, you know, to the, the center of these things. So you don't just go outside to you know the thoughts and the problems. So where is this coming from? Go sort of trace it backwards. When you find out where it's coming from, you do because it gives you a sense of being. The more you do, the more you are. The more you are, the more you have to do. You just can't leave things alone. But there's a beautiful way out of this. And that beautiful way out is actually to see it and just let go for a little while. It's hard to let go totally, that's you know, full enlightenment. But to let go for a little while, people can actually do that. They can find this little place inside where the craving starts. They can just put it aside for a few minutes. And what happens when you put it aside for a few minutes? The meditation just gets so simple and easy. When you actually see where why you are just moving the hand, where that comes from. After a while, you can feel the tension in your arm, you know, which, you know, the discontent, which was the cause of moving the hand. You can just leave it alone, and after a while, it softens. It's not sort of, uh, doesn't demand that you move anymore, and it vanishes, it goes, and you don't have to move the hand anymore. In the same way that once you actually to see this connection with this illusion of a self and see the connection between that and just the thoughts and the frustration, the restlessness and everything else which goes on on the surface outside, you'll find that tension, that tightness similar to the tightness in the arm, gets less and less and less. You become peaceful. 
you get the mental tranquility, the citta pasadi. Once you can start to do that, the meditation becomes very peaceful and very easy. It's just getting it started, which is always the hard part. Because once you get it started, and the mind starts to become peaceful because you're letting go, you're not craving anymore, yeah, you start to vanish a little bit. You're not the same as you used to be. You can hardly recognize yourself sometimes. But nevertheless, it feels very peaceful, it feels very beautiful. There's a sense of profundity there. This is what I always call you know, the Buddha's Vimuti Rasa, the taste of freedom. When you start going deep in meditation, it just feels right. It is the taste of freedom. You know that this is going to lead to something really incredible. Maybe you've only got a slight taste, but it's very delicious, and so you will, will try and get more and more and more of this. And you realize the way to do this is not to have more craving and more sort of will trying to make this happen, but to carry on just to see this core, this place where the will begins, the place where the doer lives, and just to let that go. And once you can start to let that one go, on the outside it just starts to get calmer and more peaceful. And you're also starting to understand just why because this whole practice is not just, you know, the meditation is one thing and the Dhamma is another thing. It's not just you study the suttas or you meditate. The two actually go hand in hand together. You can't separate them because this is actually where you learn what those suttas actually mean and what is actually craving. And you actually see that that, you actually see it in, oper- in action. You see as soon as you crave something, just that mind goes out, it's the asawas, goes out and starts messing up and disturbing things. As in that simile of Ajahn Chah, of the leaf moving because of the wind, it's not the leaf's nature to move. The leaf's inherent nature is to be still. The wind makes it move. Now you can understand what Ajahn Chah meant by that wind. You can actually see it blowing. It blows your mind and makes it move. It gives you the thoughts. It makes you restless. It gives you the frustration of never being able to sort of sit for long periods of time because the mind is all over the place. And that's sort of unpleasant. It doesn't allow you that that passive joy to be able to sit there and just have fun for you know, many hours. Sometimes you're just so restless you can't sit for five minutes. Where does that come from? You can actually see it happening. You go inside and see the core. This illusion of a self which has to do things. And you just calm that whole thing down. You see the craving and you can stop it. Just let things be. And that's not another type of craving. You actually let go of the thing which wants to let go. You calm it all down. And when that happens, you understand the path of meditation. That is the source of the wind which makes the leaf move. It's called craving. Now you understand what that craving is. You see it in action. Once you see it in action, it's pretty simple to recognize it as the enemy and to not buy into it. Too often people think they can fight craving with more craving to try and stop. That's using willpower. That's the way of concentration. That's the way of force and never leads to stillness. You know that once you've seen what craving is. You can't fight fire with fire. 
So what you do, you use this incredible wisdom. You can see it, and it's an emotional, it's not a rational thing. You actually see it, know it, and you just find that just that way of just relaxing, letting go, opening out, just leaving it alone, not doing anything, being passive. It takes guts to do that because it is part of you disappearing. And the more actually when you read suttas about non-self, the more that you hear teachings of non-self, the more you start to doubt you know, this thing called me, the more that even in monastic life you tend to disappear. That's one of the great advantages of monastic life over the lay life. You come to a place like this and you're a nobody, you're just an anagarika. Out there in the world you've got status, you know, you're a manager, you're a vice president, you're sort of the head secretary or whatever else it is. You've got all these statuses. You're a husband, you're a wife. You've got this, you've got that. All those things which actually make a self for you. You don't have that when you come to a monastery. You know, even me, I don't get special robes when I've been the, the boss for such a long period of time. You just don't get anything from, from being here a long time. So you don't get status. This whole idea of the vineyard and the monastic uh, life is actually to disappear. You're just a person in the line, most of you, and no one knows exactly who you are or what you are. You're vanishing. It's the same as you know, in the, in the Anagaricus here. You vanish, you're a nobody. In the world we think, no, that's really awful. You destroy my personality. But in monastic life, it's a huge help for you to learn how to let go of things. Remember this person, he came some time ago and said he had trouble with fantasies. And I like the way he said it, because in the fantasies he said, I'm always the hero. It's just another way of trying to, to uh, build up a self. You know, when you're meditating, you can't be a hero. You know, in monastic life, there's no one to save, there's no uh, goals to kick in extra time to win the championship. There's nothing to do. You can't be a hero just to cook that that final uh, meal just in time so the monks could could actually eat today and you get a round of applause. You, you don't get round of applause unless you're Ajahn Chittapala going to Armadale. He's the only one who's got rounds of applause in the last few couple of years. We just totally disappear. We get booze. We get sort of uh, stuff like that, criticism. We don't get applause, which is wonderful. So we just basically, the whole system works for us to disappear and vanish. But be careful because I think that person pointed out that many of the fantasies which you indulge in is always just a, a compensation, trying to be a hero in your mental world because you can't be a hero in the, the outside world. It's just a case of you know, just the sense of self trying to be somebody, somewhere. But after a while you let all that go. Because, you know, you understand this is Anatta, you don't have to be a hero, you're a loser. As I said in that preface to the book, you know, you are losers. At least, you know, if you're going to be a friend of mine, you're going to be a loser. You lose all of that and have no status, nothing to live up to. Because when you have that as a loser, as a nobody, as a nothing, as an emptiness, then it's so much easier 
that when you meditate, not to do things, not to struggle, not to strive, not to be the hero, not to be the attainer, not to be the great meditator who wins the psychic powers and gets the gold medal at the Olympics now, apparently, and wins the gold medal in meditation. Well done, Venerable Mudito, you've got the gold medal. You don't have that at all. That's not monastic life, that's not Buddhism, that's not meditation. We vanish. So you're not even in the last place. You're nowhere on the list at all. Somewhere during the race, it's not as if you didn't finish, you vanish somewhere halfway around the course. Now that's a real meditator. When you can actually get that inside the head, that that's what this monastic life is all about, it's much easier to meditate then. You're just sitting there, you're not trying to sort of be the hero anymore, you're not trying to gain things, you're not trying to get the gold medal and be famous. You're just vanishing. And the more you vanish, the easier it is to not do anything. And then when you don't do anything, the easier it is for that screen to become empty. It's its nature, the leaf has got its nature to be still. You find what that wind is, which makes your mind move. You find out the source of that wind. And when you can understand that, it's very easy to stop the wind. And the great thing is, is when you stop the wind, you know you've done this. This is not a theory anymore. This is not some, some uh, idea worked out you know, through logic or reason. It's not some great insight which you just thought of, which sounds very good but doesn't work. It's something actually which works. The experience comes first. And then you understand it. So all your insights are just descriptions of the process which led, which, 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 uh, led to this beautiful peaceful state. It's not an idea, it's a description of just what happened. There was nothing there. I stopped and things became peaceful. I, like, I just love that word stop so much because as a teacher every now and again people come up to you and they tell you their really deep experiences. Half of them are just fake, they just made it up. Just the ego trying to achieve something. And it's a fake gold medal. But every now and again someone comes up to you and they, they tell you the signs. And you know, listen very carefully. And sometimes, yeah, okay. I think you've uh, you have let go a lot. You got something there. But what was very interesting to me, the first half dozen or so, when I asked them, when I sort of thought, yes, you've actually got something there—a deep meditation. What did you do? And the first times, it was just well, a bit funny. It was, you know, because I knew that. You know, this was uh, the only way. But they always said the same thing. I really let go. And just, it was amusing. They always used almost exactly the same language. You know, really, truly, fully, and with the idea of letting go. And that was actually a very good thing for you to remember. To be able to access those powerful states. You don't have to know all of the things you have to do. Present moment awareness, silence, watching the breath, and now what should I do next after watching the breath? Oh yeah, full awareness of the breath. After full awareness of the breath, the next stage is... No, that actually is not really that important. 
People love those stages. They love the Anapanasati Sutta. Sixteen stages. They can really get their head around that. But to actually to let go. Very simple message. That's just sometimes beyond a person's comprehension. Because it's not rational. It's something which you experience, you feel. That's why I call it, for want of a better word, an emotional wisdom. The ability to let go of things. And these people, they really let go. They don't know, but a lot of them haven't even read the Anapanasati Sutta. They don't know the stages, but they go through all of them. It's natural, it's just what happens when you really let go. And I keep on emphasizing that because it tells you the key to get all these wonderful stages. You really, really, really let go. And what do you let go of? This source which makes the hand move. You let go of this source which creates the craving. It's the third way of meditation. Letting go leads to Nibbāna, the end of craving. A very, very, very powerful teaching of the Buddha there in that third noble truth. And it's just incredibly powerful. People must sometimes take it simply because they don't know what craving is. If they don't know what craving is, how do they know what letting go of craving is? Yeah, they know it in theory. Yeah, they've got some idea of it, but not full understanding. They haven't actually seen it work at its most profound level. Just that sense of delusion of self, just expressing itself, doing something, changing something. If you can just be content, totally give up, renounce, let go, surrender, vanish, be a loser, not a winner. If you do something like that and get those words, those signposts, very clear in the mind, they're pointing to something. And when all they're pointing to is this, this thing which the Buddha called letting go of craving. And eventually you get close enough, close enough, and just sometimes just by trial and error, if you just mess around in the right area, sooner or later you can actually do it. And when you do it, oh, the meditation's so easy. And sometimes you wonder why I've been struggling for years. Why has it been so difficult? Why has it been so frustrating? Why? And I sometimes thought I can't stay as a monk or as an anagara because the meditation, gee, do I have to put up with this all my life? And never getting anywhere, just getting frustrated. No, you actually do something. You find out how it works, and it can work. Maybe you're not able to repeat that every meditation, but it gives you the faith that, yes, anybody can meditate. Or actually, you might say that nobody can meditate. It's much better. We have to be a nobody first, but anybody can be a nobody. You can be a nobody too. That's a wonderful... A gift which I give you, the great insight that every person in this room, yes, you can be a nobody. And when you become a nobody, when you vanish, when you're a loser, then meditation can work. So you ca can be done. And when you're experiencing it happening, just how peaceful and wonderful it is, not only do you enjoy one of the best meditations you've ever had, but also you understand now I understand the Four Noble Truths. At least I've got a much deeper understanding of them. I've actually stopped craving for a little while. And this is what happened. Remember that simile which I've kept on referring to, the, the tadpole simile, the Kohlkrupper in German. I was in Frankfurt, and I know that word. 
probably pronounced it wrong again, but nevertheless, you know, it's a tadpole simile. A tadpole can't know what water is. When it becomes a frog and it jumps out of water for the first time, something that's always known for a whole life is now missing. Now it can understand what water is. Same with craving. How can you know what craving is? Until it's vanished. So you're sitting there and you don't want anything. Totally at peace. You've let go. It's scary because something, there's a couple of things. Well, actually the main thing, which has always been there, now has disappeared for a little while. It's really letting go of craving. What's disappeared is your idea of who you are. That's where you get some crazy ideas of, no, not crazy, but amazing ideas of insight into this non-self business. Because it's disappeared, it's not there anymore. This thing you've always been with, your sense of who you are, and your place in the universe, and how you've you've scraped to this place in this universe, and you struggled, and you strived, and you got to some place where you can stand, and now that's vanished and disappears. No place the sense of self can stand on. That's crazy, but it's beautiful, scary, but liberating. And that's exactly what happens. You experience those things. So you get closer and closer to the sense of non-self. More and more understanding. The more understanding you can get to that, the easier it is not to do things. And the easier it is not to do things, the more you can let go and the easier it is to get into peaceful meditations. You sit there and don't do anything. You vanish. The path is, but no traveller on it is seen. One of my favourite quotes from the Visuddhi Magga. Are you travelling on this retreat? Are you the person who's driving the car? If you are, there's no path there. It's just almost impossible to, to meditate. It's impossible to live. It's impossible to do anything. There's too much traveller on this meditation. But if you can just disappear, no traveller at all. And that, if you really disappear, I mean really disappear, because it's a tough thing to do. You can't make yourself disappear. If you make yourself disappear because you're making, you're just strengthening the sense of self. You're doing it. You're doing the meditation. You're doing the enlightenment business. And then you achieve enlightenment. You'll know that people who claim to be enlightened are just the last people who are enlightened. Because it's all about you disappearing, vanishing. That's why, what's <laughs> that? Then Ananda Mangala, I really enjoyed him, he's long dead. But this was 28 years ago, he came over here, he was giving a talk in our old centre in Magnolia Street. And when somebody asked him, he said, well, are you enlightened? You know, we get that question a lot. And you know, a lot of times we say, well, according to your eight, we can't actually say to a lay person. But you know, he was very, um, very sharp and very amusing. And he told the person, he said, I'm not enlightened, but I'm highly eliminated. And that's a beautiful saying. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what a great, great answer, repost. So anyone, if, you're, if someone asks you, are you enlightened? You know, Ajahn Bhamadi can always say, I'm highly eliminated. It makes them laugh. But it's also, there's a lot of truth to that. You, you know, you're disappearing, you're becoming eliminated. Of course, it's a play on words, because most people expect you mean illuminated. Now we're not illuminated, we're eliminated. <laughs> so we're trying to eliminate ourselves.
just like the stupid thought came up. I don't know where this came from, but I remember as a young kid, he used to watch Doctor Who, and in Doctor Who, he had these, these, had these monsters called the Daleks, who always used to say, exterminate, exterminate, exterminate. So you can say that I'm the Ajahn Dalek, and I'm going, exterminate, exterminate you. <laughs> so this is what we're trying to do, eliminate. So there's no traveler there. So you sit there, and when it's, you know that there's no self there, when there's no doing. For a moment, you've vanished. You're not doing anything. Do you get an understanding of what this sense of self truly is? It's that which causes all the doing, all of the struggling, all the striving, all of the wanting. So all this wanting to become enlightened, wanting to get jhanas, wanting to get peaceful, it's counterproductive. That is the problem. So instead of wanting all these things, just let go of all wanting. Just find out the source. Why my hand moves? Where did that come from? When you actually find out, a lot of times it is just to show that your body is still there. It's just to be. It's not just karma done hard. It's not just a craving for sensory pleasures. A lot of it is that second of the cravings. The craving to exist, to be. And the only way that you can show you're there is actually to do something, to say something, to move. Ah, oh, yeah, I'm still here. So you have to be courageous enough to let go and vanish. That's why I, some years ago, I describe the energy, the effort, virya, from the root party word viro, the hero. It's not just any old effort. It's the effort to sacrifice yourself for the enlightenment. Just like the hero in battle sacrifices their life. They say a royal king's elephant can sacrifice all his limbs for the king. He can take arrows, sword blows, and so all his limbs, he doesn't guard one of them. He can let everything go. That's the royal elephant in the Buddha's uh, similes. And this is actually how much you sacrifice. You let everything go. Everything. You don't protect even a small part of your sense of self. If you protect a small part of your sense of self, that will be still bawadanha. Still the craving for some little bit to, to exist. Therefore, you will not be still. You can't let go of the craving. You'll always be interfering. So this is actually why when you're meditating, don't just look at the thoughts, the fantasies. Look where they're coming from. Look that this is some craving. There's some doing there. There's some interference. And where's that coming from? Because you're traveling again. There's a journeyman or journeywoman on the path. See that. Allow it to vanish and disappear. There's no person in there. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go, nothing to achieve. Who achieves anything anyway? Just the five candles doing their job. So when there's no one inside, what are you aiming for in this retreat? Are you trying to get jhanas? Who's trying to get jhanas? What are these jhanas anyway? You're trying to get something you don't know what you're talking about, what you're thinking about. 
That's what the problem. So you just vanish, you disappear. Don't be a traveller, don't be a doer. You sit down on your cushion and vanish. And if you actually put the focus on that, the thing doing the meditation and stopping all of that, stop doing meditation. And instead, let meditation happen. When the traveller vanishes, the path, I say it's like a super highway, you can't miss it. You just get carried along with the current. And you just get all these amazing states. And that's a wonderful thing about this meditation. It only works when you understand some Dhamma. You can't have meditation without insight. You can't have insight without meditation. Nati jhananga panyasa panya nati ajayato. You know, I've told that many times. 372 Dhammapada. I don't know many quotes from the Dhammapada verse by verse, but that's what I do know because that's a favorite one. There's no jhana without wisdom. There's no wisdom without jhana. That's how it all works. But the last two lines, but when you have the deep meditation and you've got the wisdom, things have vanished. You're really still. You understand why. Then you are in the presence of Nibbana. Sawe Nibbana Santike. That's powerful. So if you want to get enlightened, if you really Nibbana is what you really want, then disappear. Stop wanting it. Vanish. Don't want anything. See just how eliminated you can become. And the more eliminated you are, the more the, your idea of self has vanished, the more that you'll understand what this craving was. And it was a craving which was a problem. Now you really understand that that little simile of the two types of meditation, second noble truth meditation, third noble truth meditation, was not just a joke. It was not just like a funny adaptation of the four noble truths. It was one of the most profound teachings. It just describes meditation and describes the path to Nibbana. So if you are having a hard time in the meditation, please know it's second noble truth meditation you've been doing. It's not that you can't meditate, that the meditation is not done according to the plan, not according to the instructions. The method is wrong. Whatever thing you're doing, if it's not causing peace, freedom, the joy of peace, you're going in the wrong direction. And it doesn't matter how often you have to mess around and play with this. Just get it once. Get a jhana once and it's just worth a whole retreat, worth 20 retreats, 100 retreats. Because you get the taste of freedom. You understand what the message of the Buddha really was. So that's the talk this evening on how to let go. Thank you.